Hello, wrestling fans. Welcome to the latest episode, the 24th monthly episode, which means our two-year birthday is coming up. But yeah, 24 monthly episodes of Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getz, and with me as always is my co-host, John Boucher. John, how are you? Has spring sprung in New York? It has. Today was a lovely, a lovely, lovely spring day uh, in New York City. I, I walked around for a little bit this morning, uh, and then my allergies got terrible, so I came back inside and stayed inside for the remainder of the day. But it was lovely. It was it lovely, lovely while it lasted. Until I couldn't see from the, the water and things dripping from my eyes. But other than that, it was lovely, except for things <laughs> dripping from John's eyes. Well, not blood, just like the, the allergies. Just things. Yeah, not blood, just, you know, things. Sure, of course. Well, this month, we're going to look at the second quarter of 1974 in Leroy McGurk's Oklahoma slash Louisiana territory. Ken Mantell's mega push continues. Armand Hussein feuds with Skandor Akbar. Bob Sweetan and Rip Tyler turn babyface. Tons of new faces show up, including a couple of faces without faces. Hmm. And a surprising name is advertised for two shows in Mississippi, plus a rookie named Frank makes his first appearances in this territory in the hopes of bruising his opponents. We'll also talk about the 1973 All-Star Wrestling Vancouver Almanac, featuring some youngsters named Larry, Alpha, and Sika, and a huge main event run for the Brute. All that and more, including This Month I Learned, where both John and I discuss one new thing we learned during the month, and a new monthly feature that I haven't even told John what it is yet. It's so new that John is going to be just as surprised as our listeners yeah. when I spring it. Oh, boy. And yeah. as always, we begin with shit John bought me off eBay. Yes, yes we do. Listeners, <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you one thing. John is a pretty literal person. And when I say, John, I want you to go and buy me random stuff off of eBay... He does just that. Again, it's almost always wrestling related, and this is definitely wrestling related, but it's also very weird, random stuff. So I am now the proud owner of a pillow, a very small pillow, perhaps a child's pillow. Uh, and it is uh, adorned with the visage of everyone's favorite wrestler, Eugene. Yes, Nick Dinsmore as Eugene, and uh, on the pillow it says, hello, my name is Eugene, and then there's a picture of, of Eugene uh, with a, a happy expression on his face. That will probably give kids nightmares if they actually saw it. So, John, I have to ask, was this something you said, oh, man, I'm going to find a Eugene pillow to buy Al, or were you just randomly searching things and you saw that and said, hmm, that'll do? Okay, I had no. I um, I figured you know all this traveling that you're doing, mm -hmm. you know, with the baseball stadiums that you, you you're on these you're on these rinky dink airplanes with their 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 their, their seats are terrible. You don't you know? know you don't know me at all if you think I fly rinky dink air, airplanes. <laughs> but anyway, you're flying like those little Buddy Holly planes. It's a, 
Uh, you know, I thought maybe you could use like you bring like a little pillow for traveling to keep your, you know, because I remember you, you like last year talking about being a cauliflower alley and right. your back went out, you know? Yeah, yeah true. I, want, I don't want that to happen when you're on on, on, on the road to, uh, you know, uh, like the polo ground or something, you know, you got to keep you, you got to keep in shape. Uh, so you, you understand if might come in handy. If I attempt to bring this Eugene pillow through TSA, I'm going to get put on a list. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how I feel about this, but yes, that is what John bought me off eBay this month, a Eugene pillow. So thank you for that. Question before yeah. I move on. Of course. Question before I move on. Did, was it autographed? Is it autographed? Is it say, is it? Is it, is it supposed to be autographed? It is not. It is not interesting too. Cause like, cause this, 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 it was supposed to be, um, mm. the, it, the listing was from Mr. Nick Dinsmore himself. Um, the auction listing actually said he would personalize the autograph or inscribe it. However you, you wish. So I was hoping to make that happen for you. Make well, this, uh, well but to I, Mr. Nick Dinsmore, who I met once at the Louisville Gardens in the summer of 1998, you ripped us off. We were supposed to get a personalized autograph, and instead <laughs> we do not. So there you go. Yeah. So no, no. Uh, okay. Well, well yep. there you go. Things, things you learn is that when a wrestler <laughs> says he's going to sign something and just send him the money first, don't do it. <laughs> Yeah. Also, not so not so good with the shipping time there, Mister Dinsmore. Yeah. Well, we we cut it close. We're uh, again we're recording this episode of the podcast a week earlier than normal, so that's put John in a bit of a time crunch in trying to order things, uh, you know, with a shorter window. But this one got here uh, just in the nick of time. No pun intended. Yes. <laughs> I I didn't even. <laughs> wow. Yeah. See. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess I should, uh, you know, dim the lights more often. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Moving on. Moving on on to the spring of 1974 when I was three years old and John was one? Uh, Zero. I was zero. zero. I I was probably spring of 74. I was like six, eight months, six, eight months old. Okay. All right. So you were zero. <laughs> but Ken Mantell was I not zero. Yeah, Ken no. Mantell was number one. He was clearly the number one babyface in the territory, holding the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title and having the highest average weekly spot rating in the territory, a 0.91. Now, listeners recall the spot rating measures a wrestler's average position on the cards, and that wrestlers with a spot of 0.80 or greater are considered main eventers. So after Mantell, the other main eventers in the territory are Rip Tyler, Skandor Akbar, Arman Hussein, Bob Sweetan, Grizzly Smith, the team of Benny and Billy McGuire, who were in for just a few weeks, and Lorenzo Parente, whose average weekly spot rating was a .82. Now looking at these wrestlers, Mantell, Hussein, Grizzly, and Parente are babyfaces, as are the McGuire twins, but they're more of a special attraction. Akbar is a heel, and both Rip Tyler and Bob Sweetan turned babyface during the quarter. Now, in the case of Rip, he turns babyface in some of the towns, but maybe not all of them. Uh, he appears to still be the booker, as evidenced by his high position on the cards and his status 
as North American heavyweight champion for all but the last week of the quarter. However, later on in this episode, John, when we discuss uh, another wrestler, there's uh, perhaps someone else who may have been Booker at this time. Hmm. But we'll get to that. Uh, Rip's babyface turn, again, whether it was in the whole territory or just in some of the towns, I think it was short-lived. It was just a sort of few-week thing done to get the North American title off of him and on to Bull Ramos. Now, as for Sweet Tan, his is a full-fledged babyface turn. Uh, He had been uh, a top heel at this point for a good three years. I think he was here for most of that time, not all of it. I know there was that injury where he broke both of his feet in a car accident. And I think, of course, there were one or two other occasions where he left to go to another territory. But he was a mainstay here along with Grizzly. And, of course, it's hard sometimes to talk about Leroy McGurk's territory without mentioning Sweet Tan or Grizzly. You know, we try to uh, not to linger on them too much. I think yeah. uh, all of our listeners and supporters understand why. We certainly can't ignore them, but, you know, we spend more time focusing on the good folks in wrestling and some interesting <laughs> stories about people. And, you know, when their name comes up, we say they were here, they did this, they did that, and we move on. Of course, we might talk about some amusing Don Fargo or Chris Colt anecdotes, some of the other wacky stories, but with... You know, Bob Sweetan and Grizzly Smith, uh, you know, I really the the less we the less time we spend on them, the better. But we can't ignore them. So, you know, what what, what, is that sort of how you feel? It's it's hard sometimes because even Mr. Wrestling to Rocky Johnson. What do you you know, what do you cover when you're talking about them? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like for me, like what the two of the guys you mentioned I had on on that are there on my short list for like the, the, the crazy, the crazy wacky guys who have the, the fun, the hilarious stories, like the Don Fargo, the Chris Colt, story, like the, the great Antonio or from Mario Galento, other guys that we talked about, these guys who sort of seem to exist on the fringes of society to the point where pro wrestling is one of the few career options for them. Like, I love talking about those types of guys where it's right. like it's more towards the bizarre than the evil and dark, I guess. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> Weren't necessarily bad people. They were wacky people. Maybe they were bad people, but they weren't evil people. And I think enough has come out about Bob and Grizz to, you know, to say that that moniker fits the two of them. So, uh, like I said, we try not to dwell on them. So let's not dwell on them and let's move on. What are we doing? So with two heels turning babyface, that does leave a void at the top of the cards. And that void was filled by uh, two relative relative newcomers, Buck Robley and Bull Ramos. Both men are being pushed up the cards as the spring progresses. Now, of course, we have the week-by-week spot rating chart on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And what we see, we'll take a look at Buck Robley first. The first week of April, Buck's spot rating was a 055 And that places him at the higher end of the mid-carder category, which is between a 0.4 and a 0.6. It starts increasing in May and gets into the upper mid-card level of between 0.6 and 0.8. And the week ending May 26th, it goes above a 0.80 for the first time, which would put him in the main eventer category. So by the end of the month, both men are slotted as main eventers. But when you look at their average spot rating over the whole 13-week period of time, they fall in the upper mid-carder category. 
So that's you know, sort of it's, it's what's neat about doing it week by week. You, you can literally see a wrestler being pushed up the cards. And so if Robley was a mid carder in April and a main eventer in June, that sort of averages out to put him in the upper mid carder category. Bull debuted in April and he was pushed for several weeks and his spot rating went above a 0. 0.80 for the first time the week ending June 16th. So both of them by the end of June are main eventers on the heel side, along with Skandor Akbar. Besides Robley and Ramos, other upper mid-carders in the territory, all of whom had an average weekly spot rating between 0 .60 and 0 .80, include Babyface's Luke Brown and the masked team of Mr. Wrestling and Mr. Wrestling Number 2. Now, these were not any of the well-known versions of Mr. Wrestling or Mr. Wrestling number two. I'm fairly certain that Mr. Wrestling here was Ron Starr and Mr. Wrestling number two was Francisco Flores. Of course, Francisco Flores is a part of another masked controversy uh, regarding the Mil Mascaris in Memphis. But in this case, what I did, I reached out to uh, an acquaintance, Chris Swisher, who actually owns the original negatives uh, of photographs taken by Lil Al Vavasour, who is a uh, photographer in the 1970s uh, who took pictures backstage in Baton Rouge and a couple other towns in Louisiana, also in Georgia as well, and uh, submitted them to Norm Keitzer's magazines. Uh, so most of the pictures you see from this territory in Keitzer magazines and Keitzer programs are uh, from Lil Al, but Chris has the negatives. So we went ahead and, and looked at these uh, and tried to see if we could, you know, confirm it's Star and Flores. In the case of Flores, I'm quite certain. And in the case of Ron Star, I'm less certain, but still feel confident. Uh, I would, if I'm a, if I were a betting man, I'd say it's a bet significantly better than 50-50 chance that it's Ron Star. So Ron Starr and Francisco Flores were Mr. Wrestling and Mr. Wrestling number two in Lira McGurk's territory in 1974. Now on the heel side, upper mid-carders are Mr. Ito, Siegfried Stanka, Rocket Monroe, Randy Tyler, and a tag team consisting of Gunga Din and Kubla Khan, neither of whom were the originals. <laughs> Neither of whom were the more famous versions yeah. of Gunga Din and Kublai Khan for you uh, real-world historians. Now, talking about Rocket Monroe, this was the second Rocket Monroe. The first one had actually been here as Rocket Monroe in 1963. That was William Fletcher, but this one was Maury High, and I think he's the more well-known Rocket Monroe. As for that tag team, Kublai Khan was a wrestler named Henry Peluso, who actually spent most of it, much of his career wrestling in Mexico and was a big part of uh, the angle where El Santo turned babyface. Huh. As for Gunga Din, Gunga Din was Francisco Flores. <laughs> so okay. originally he's here as Gunga Din, and then Kublai Khan either gets injured or leaves the territory 
and Flores stayed as Gungadin for maybe a week or two and then switched his gimmicks and put on a mask and became Mr. Wrestling number two. So in the same, you know, quarter, he's wrestling his two different gimmicks. So, John, let's talk about other wrestlers who change their gimmick in the middle of a run in a territory where, where it's not acknowledged or, or or where a wrestler came in and replaced someone else. So I think Demolition in the WWF, yep. where it was originally Randy Colley and then it was replaced with Darsow. Were you able to think of any other similar scenarios to this? You know, we just mentioned him, Ron Starr. I remember reading in Ron Starr's book that uh, when he was in, in L.A., um, I think the story was Don Jardine was out there for you know maybe a week or two or one pay period, we'll call it. And he didn't <laughs> like and he didn't like his pay. So he just like you took his took his check and, and ran. Right. Um, like, screw you guys. So I think they put uh, Ron Starr and just made him the spoiler. Um, and I guess no one was the wiser initially. And I think they and eventually, I think the, the, the storyline went, he was unmasked as and presented as Ron Starr. And, you know, Ron says it was him the whole time. And I think they, there was some sort of hubbub like, oh, it was, yeah, I didn't think the promoters would give me a chance as Ron Starr, so I had to wear this mask to get a title shot or something, something like that. Is that's the first one that comes to mind? Um, there's a lot of that too. I remember being a kid watching the WWF, and they would do that with like Tonga Kid and King Tonga, like they just became Haku and Tama or Tama right. and Haku, like that. Um, even Wendy Richter. I mean, Wendy Richter, you know, the six months before she was like she bopping with Cindy Lauper, she was like a heel with a cowgirl Wendy Richter with the chaps and the cowboy or cowgirl hat rather. Um, you know, they just switched, you know, all of a sudden she's like a new wave star with, with Cindy Lauper there. Yeah. That um, was also, I think we talked about this a few months ago in Memphis, Dickie Steinborn, uh, went in as Mr. Wrestling and the advertisements actually said, yeah. Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods, and yep. they were going to do a storyline where the real Tim Woods would show up and say, that's not me. Uh, or no, I think first Johnny Walker was going to come in and say, no, that's not Mr. <laughs> Wrestling number one. And then it would lead to Tim coming in. But that part of the angle was aborted. So they just uh, sort of, I guess they unmasked Steinborn somehow and just sort of swept it under the rug. Uh, there was also a weird one in Florida. I'm not sure of the particulars, but I believe it was Jody Hamilton and someone else were in as the assassins. I'm assuming Roger Smith. Huh. And well, Roger okay. Roger left the territory and they brought in Mr. Saito under huh. a hood. And I believe they didn't, you know, they didn't say this was the assassin number three, that they said this was the same one that had been teaming with Jody the whole time. But then they unmasked him as Mr. Saito. And he stayed there for a couple of weeks as himself. Huh. So to a fan watching, they would think that Saito was the second assassin the whole time, even though he wasn't. That, that reminds me of another one too. Um, and I, I, I forget the exact chronology, um, like with, with Kelly Kaniski as the mass oh, superstar. The super, yeah, uh, and Mid South with, uh, yeah, with Edie. They, they, they teamed at one point, but did they ever try to pass him off as, 
as the mass superstar or was it always I, he was the mass superstar number number two and just enough people have said they would do on the house shows they would i think Edie either left or was in japan and they would pass kaniski off as the the first one as opposed to saying this is number two i uh. think that's what it is i know uh, on the Mid-South Universe board, that topic comes up frequently. And there are enough people that say that they were trying to pass him off as Edie that I that I believe that's what they did. Yeah, it's always so, so funny because like Edie has such like a, such a distinctive style. Right. Like it's like the way just the way he the way he hits like those forearms to the back and the way he sells on one knee. Like it's so distinctive. It's like I don't know how you would you have to be really good to pull that off and well, this, this is all going to tie into uh, my This Month I Learned coming up oh. later. Uh-huh. Uh, so th- this discussion is uh, sort of a nice little setup for that. But that comes at the end of the podcast. You got to listen all the way through to hear that. <laughs> In addition to the entire talent roster and their spot ratings, we also look at the biggest feuds during the second quarter of 1974 on the on our blog, using the new FLW, which stands for Feud Length in Weeks statistic, to identify the biggest feuds. FLW approximates the length of a feud in a territory by looking at how many times the match takes place, where on the cards those matches occur, and how those matches are spread out over time and place. And as a broad rule of thumb, an FLW score of three or above is an indication of a legit feud, yeah, a legit, a legit fake in-ring feud between two wrestlers. I, I say legit feud, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, the only feud with an FLW score above three this quarter was Ken Mantell versus Buck Robley with an FLW of 3.45. And the next biggest was the one between Arman Hussein and Skandar Akbar, which had an FLW of 2.74 during the quarter. However, both of those feuds actually stretched out into the third quarter as well. Of course, when we break these these up by in three-month increments, sometimes you're not catching the complete feud. It might start in the spring and go on into the summer. Uh, in the case of Hussein and Akbar, there's actually two distinct legs to the feud. The first one happens in the spring where Hussein seems to come out on top and then later on in the year, they feud again. And shortly after the feud begins, Akbar wins the North American title and he ends up winning that leg of the feud, or at least winning most of the blow off matches in various towns in that feud. And our, our anatomy of a feud feature on the blog looks at the Hussein Akbar feud, including both legs. And we list all the known matches chronologically by city. So you can see how the feud progressed in the different markets. And again, you know, this isn't like the mid-1980s territories where every city has the exact same sequence because they're all playing off the same TV. Here, uh, each town often has its own storylines based on how the feud draws the first time out. They might choose to have the baby face over clean and, and blow it off, or they might do a disputed finish to build to a rematch. And each town sort of has its own little uh, progression of the feuds. Now, a little further down the cards are the mid-carders who have an average spot rating between 0.40 
and .60. And among the wrestlers in the mid-cards in the spring of 1974 were two newcomers that don't get talked about as much as most of their contemporaries. One was a longtime tag team partner of the King, while the other had quite the colorful pedigree at one time teaming with Chris Colt and at another time possibly wrestling as the Rat Man. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Well, let's discuss these two men and give them their due. First up is Jim White, and second off is Bulldog Drummer, a.k.a. Count Drummer. So, Jim White. Now, Jim was born in Tennessee uh, in a town called Rogersville, which is in the northeastern part of the state between Morristown and Kingsport. But he actually got his start wrestling in Chicago. He was there working a temporary summer job while he was 17 years old. And his first matches happened in, in Chicago for promoter Fred Kohler. And his father, Jim White's father, actually had to sign a consent form allowing him to wrestle. Now, Billy Gells, who was Kohler's booker, mentioned White to Nick Goulas, and Goulas started using him on some shows under the name of Tiny York. And John, do you know why they uh, had him use a different name than his real name? I, I, my guess was that he was getting some, some, uh, some pushback from his uh, high school coaches. Correct. Um, yes, he was playing football. They, they threatened to kick him off the teams. And well, I, I assume maybe he's dead. That would throw him off his trail a little bit. Amazing and yeah, I don't think they threatened. I think he realized that he you know, should yeah. probably use uh, an assumed name. And it's it, it's funny because he, you know, I I, he, I was reading that. I was like, oh, he probably just used that till he was out of high school. But they're like, no, he used this. He used this name, Tiny York when he was working on like the Knoxville end of the state through like all the way through like 1975. Um, <laughs> and if you look at his career, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like if you like a random two month stretch in 1972, for example, he'll be wrestling in like Johnson city, Tennessee as tiny York. Then he'll be wrestling for Billy Golden in Northeastern Alabama as Woodrow Bass. And then working in, Florence in northwestern Alabama for Goulas is Jim White, like all <laughs> in the same like month. It's, it's yeah, it's crazy. weird. So, yeah, so he was originally Tiny York. And then I think the next one was uh, a mass tag team with Roy Klein, known as the Green Shadows. And then when they, the, when Roy and Jim went to work for Billy Golden, they were Woodrow Bass and Roy Bass, and they were managed by Sam Bass. Yep. And, of course, that's probably, you know, where the connection to Jerry Lawler came about. But in early 1972, as Jim White, he formed a team with a young Jerry Lawler. Uh, you found uh, some footage of White and Lawler. Uh, first, there is an interview with White and Lawler. Uh, let me rephrase that. There's an interview with Lawler and, and White gets a couple of words in as well at some point. I got to tell you, this is nothing like the Lawler of just a few years later. Um, he's He has confidence and he has poise for his age. I think he's 23, 24. 
Yeah, not even 25 years old. Um, So he does have poise and confidence, but definitely doesn't quite have the swagger that he would develop uh, just a few years later. And then uh, there's what's listed as a match between Jerry Lawler and Jim White versus Leon Chandler and Ken Nichols. And did you watch this one? Yes. (laughs) So... There is no match between Jerry Lawler and Jim White and Leon Chandler, Ken Nichols. This no. is what was from, advertised. From what? But yeah, they, 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 yeah, uh, uh, Roy Lucher, uh, you know, gave us a, didn't present the card that he, uh, that he, he planned there. Uh, for what I remember about reading about this specific TV is that it was sort of a weird anomaly in, 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 in this, you know, crew, because I guess there was a snowstorm or something that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from December. So they have kind of a skeleton crew. So there's basically only two matches on this entire hour of TV. Um, like Sam Bass versus Tommy Gilbert is the first one. Two out of three falls. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's like a big Jim Hess interviewing Ron Wright, who is fantastic. Just just incredible. Um, arguing with, with big Jim uh, arguing with John Kazana, arguing, slapping the referee at the interview desk. It's great stuff. At some point during the third fall, like Lawler and White run in on the Bass-Gilbert match and attack Tommy Gilbert. Um, so that sets up like a Lawler-Tommy Gilbert match, and they eventually go to the uh, go to the like a time limit draw at the end of the show, and they interview Lawler and, and, and White again. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's, it's Tommy it's like Gilbert. A, He's yeah. got to work. He's got to work the whole hour of TV. <laughs> he looked, he looked rough. Yeah, yeah, that's he did, rough. He did. But so this, yeah, this is where you know this is where Jerry Lawler got his sea legs, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, they worked. You, know, you talk about they're in East Tennessee at this point, uh, so they're working for Kazana or Kazana, and but he's still booking talent through the Goulas office. Obviously, he has Ron Wright and Don Wright, and he has a couple of other guys that are part of his core crew. But what they do is they'll book one or two tag teams from the Goulas office. And one tag team will come in and work a several, you know, work for several weeks building up to uh, feuding with Ron and Don Wright, for example. And as that feud is about to get blown off, they'll bring in another tag team uh, from Goulas's office and, and build them up to then be the next opponents for mm-hmm. Ron and Don. So, you know, even though we always think of East Tennessee as its own territory, at this point in time, they are booking uh, almost half of their their crew, maybe a little less than that, out of Goulas's office, as is Phil Golden. Now, it's in 1973 when Phil becomes opposition to Goulas, but in 71 and 72, he is actually... Um, Booking talent from Goulas and then having some of his own guys uh, like Dale Mann, uh, that that type of, of guy. But really, Goulas, it's mind boggling, as I've done research, how many shows Goulas uh, was running or how many shows featured talent out of Goulas's booking office. It's got to be at least mm. four a night every night of the week. It's yeah. just uh, it's it's just crazy. And you found an interesting ad where. They were uh, they were advertising Jim White and they billed him as X, as in the letters E-X, Green Shadow. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. This is something I've seen uh, more, you know, more than once in Goulas' territory. What I think it is, I think it's a kayfabe saving maneuver. I think hmm. 
It might be an example of when the green shadows are doing are, are being unmasked in other towns in the territory. I think they're sort of hedging their bets. They, you know, they're not going to do the unmasking in this town, but just in case one fan knows, you know, that they were unmasked in another town, they will start advertising them under their real names and then saying he was the X Green Shadow. So they're maybe they're leading fans to believe he has chosen voluntarily to take his mask off oh, and okay. do this. It's kind of like what we saw in Mid South in '81 when Orndorff, when they taped his heel turn at the TV taping, but before it aired in the various markets, they would put him in placeholder matches against fellow babyface Tony Charles, yeah, where yep. Orndorff would basically be a babyface, but start showing some heel tendencies. So this way to a fan that knows what happened, it makes sense to a fan that doesn't know what happened. It will, it, you know, they'll, when they see Orndorff trying to say, Oh, I should have known. Cause he tried to cheat a little against Tony Charles. I think huh. it's something similar here. So that if a fan knows that the Green Shadows got un got unmasked in Nashville, and here we are in Florence, they can say, okay, so they are acknowledging that they got unmasked in Nashville. And to a fan that doesn't know that, they'll say, oh, he was one of the Green Shadows. Okay, now he's Jim White. Cool. Uh, I think. Is Jim White wasn't the green shadow that Cornette always talks about. That's another guy. Was that Pat Malone? Is that the other uh, there green were shadow? So, there were so many uh, green <laughs> shadows and black <laughs> monsters and red terrors. Uh, I know Bo James has told me that the reason they, they had, they always had at least one mass team like that would be because they ran so many shows that sometimes they'd send random people to be red terrors in multiple towns. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. So it's possible there might have been more than one version of the Green Shadows working uh, house shows in some of the spot towns. Uh, it's like I said, it's uh, mind-boggling how many shows they ran. Now you, uh, you pointed out to me that Jim White was married to female wrestler Lily Thomas at one point, and Jim White, uh, well, his last name also relates to his uh, <laughs> his uh, he's he's Caucasian. He is a uh, Lily Thomas was not. No, I think and, she was yeah. not the not the legitimate sister of Sailor Art Thomas. Bill, I think they were billed as brother and sister. Right. But yeah, I, I, think yeah I don't believe they're related. But so you know, this is the 1970s in in Tennessee, and we have an interracial marriage. That's uh, yeah, you know, is, really yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really surprising. Uh, I, I I would love to. I don't, I've never seen any quote unquote shoot interviews with either but i you know i would love to know if there are any you know if they just had any stories to tell about their experiences as an interracial couple in the south in the early 1970s because it it couldn't have been easy i mean you know no, we're talking no. about we're talking about don bass perhaps being married to or being in a relationship with ma bass yeah. who is much older than him that's nothing compared to this yeah this challenging i think would very Putting it very lightly, how that you know would have gone for them, you know. Yeah, but Jim spent most of his career in the southeast, most mostly for Goulas. Uh He did have a couple of runs in Gulf Coast. Uh, I think eventually after the Goulas, uh split, he worked probably. I think he ended up working for both. And of course, he did have this one run in Leroy McGurk's territory, where he teamed with another wrestler named Lawler, but not Jerry. 
This was Steve Lawler, who is not the 90s Georgia-based wrestler Steve the Brawler Lawler, but was a guy also billed as Gorilla Lawler and perhaps better known in Georgia as Steve Kyle. But Jim White and Steve Lawler were a team here. So, yeah, so there's a little bit about Jim White. But really, since he didn't travel as much as so many other wrestlers, he was just confined to uh, Tennessee in the southeast for so many years. There's really not a whole lot to be found on him. But there's more to be there was more to be found on Jim White than there was on our next subject. And that's Bulldog Drummer. So I think one of the things most people know about Bulldog is what uh, Cornette said about him on one of his podcasts, that um, Bulldog Drummer also wrestled as Count Drummer, and he was basically doing a vampire gimmick. And at one point teamed with Chris Colt, where Count Drummer was portrayed as a vampire you know, for who was 500 years old or whatever. Meanwhile, Chris Colt was pretending to be an alien from the future. And maybe he wasn't even pretending for all we know, again, as little info as there is on Chris Colt, perhaps he was an alien from the future. And that's why we can't find anything on him. (laughs) But going a step further, John, you found uh, something on YouTube. And as always, all these YouTube clips, we will always post links to them on Twitter shortly after this podcast comes out. So be sure to follow us at Al Gets Wrestling and at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. But you found something on YouTube and it's audio only, uh, but it's a match between Count Drummer and Chris Colt versus Angelo and Randy Poffo. And the ring introductions of Colt and Drummer are kind of unique. So, John, uh, walk <laughs> us walk us through how they're introduced. Yeah, it, it's kind of, I thought it was really cool. They're 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 built respectively, not from you know in any particular towns or or cities or countries. Uh, you know, they're built uh, respectively as being from the past and the future, uh, and collectively as time machine, which. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, really cool. Really Interesting. Cool, really yeah. And so uh, we're talking about Jim White having been married to a female wrestler. So was Bob Drummer at one point. We yeah. think. Yes, 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 yes. Um, well, according to the, the, the up until the, the research I did for the show, the only real info that I had on Count Drummer was just a, a brief Paragraph, not even uh, um, from Dean Silverstone's book, where uh, um, he talks about, you know, expanding into the Yakima, Washington, and how the and how the radio and TV stations in the in the area would request they send wrestlers to do guest spots on their radio and TV shows. So one of the TV stations, for whatever reason, scheduled Count Drummer to appear on a cooking show. I hope it was a nighttime segment, you know. Uh, where he instructed the viewers on the proper method of barbecuing bats. You know, so of course he shows up in full gimmick with a red and black cape um, and arrives an old hearse with a coffin in the back, which is how he would drive from town to town when he was making, making shows. Um, according to Dean Silverstone, the station loved it and they really got over and they had him back like a dozen more times or whatever. Um, but, you know, he's so driving around his, his, his wife, uh, female wrestler Tanya West, who is better known to fans of our generation as Stella Mae French. She would drive the hearse around from town to town, assuming they didn't have, you know, Count Drummer ride in the 
coffin and the, the whole way. Maybe if they were fighting, she could banish him to the coffin in the back or something. But uh, it worked out well for Silverstone because if he had a, a, a female wrestler, you know, coming into the territory, she would just be there on the cards anyway and could could work a match. Um, but yeah, he finally really got over into Como. Like the fans were really into it, uh, really bought into like the vampire gimmick and he would hear people saying that they thought he was a real vampire. And a lot of the ringside regulars would bring in these crudely fashioned homemade wooden crosses to the matches and hold them up and taunt him with the wooden crosses, which is <laughs> a great visual. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, all right. So let's recap what we know and what we, what John and I were able to find online. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned yet, his real name. And we, I've seen this in multiple, multiple places, all from very reliable sources that his real name was Bob Alibi, spelled A-L-E-B-I. But all we know is that he wrestled as Count Drummer, Bulldog Drummer, a little bit as Bob Drummer, mostly wrestled in sort of the, the middle swath of the United States. He wrestled a lot in up in Ohio and Michigan, down to Central States, down for McGurk, also some for Goulas and for Gulf Coast. I think he had a brief run in East Texas. He seems to have been married to a wrestler at some point. And other than that, we know nothing about his, well, let me rephrase that. Until now, we knew nothing else about his life pre-wrestling or post-wrestling. So John, in our preparation for this podcast, as we were doing this, both of us sort of came upon dead ends when trying originally trying to find anything new. Um, I know I, I was Googling and you were Googling and also looking at Ancestry.com. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but yeah. you know, when we when we try and search for these things, it's not just, you know, it's not just in typing count drummer wrestler. You have to do various uh types. So drummer wrestling also pulls up a lot of false negatives, a lot of things having nothing to do with count drummer, but also in trying to find things on his real name. We're searching for Bob Alibi, Robert Alibi, Bobby Alibi, Robbie Alibi, Bob Alibi Wrestling, Alibi Drummer, uh, all sorts of things like that. And yep. neither of us were finding anything. And at one point, I was I pretty much figured this was going to be just like Battleship Johnson last month, where all we would do would be to compile everything you know that is already known. Uh, from various spots on the web and not be able to offer anything new. However, one search I did was just for Alibi Wrestling. And that's when I got a hit that I hadn't yet seen before. Yeah. Terry Bores was a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times and also a radio host uh, in the Windy City, hosting the sports talk show Boars and Bernstein with Dan Bernstein for 17 years. In Terry's autobiography titled Score of a Lifetime, 25 Years Talking Chicago Sports, Terry has a whole chapter dedicated to a high school friend of his, and the chapter is named Bob. Mm-hmm. Terry and his friend Bob while students at Bloom High School in Chicago Heights, Illinois, would go to wrestling matches in Chicago, Hammond, Indiana, and even as far away as Minneapolis together. Bob spent his weekends 
being trained at Bob Saber's Wrestling Academy. Now, John, do you know what Bob Saber's most uh, infamous wrestling gimmick was? Bob Saber, I believe he was George Ringo, the wrestling Beatle. Right? Yes. Uh, yes. During the height of Beatlemania in the mid 60s, uh, Bob Saber decided to wrestle as uh, George Ringo doing a Beatles gimmick. Yeah. So there we go. So there's something we had no one in yeah. wrestling circles had documented this information before, but uh, Count Drummer went to Bloom High School in Chicago Heights, Illinois, and was friends with a future uh, sports columnist and sports radio host. So you may be asking yourself why nobody had stumbled upon this information before. And there's a good reason for that. You see, Terry Boers' friend Bob was not named Bob Alibi. His real name was Bob, and the last name, I'll spell it first, A-E-B-I. So it's only four letters. There's no L in it. And it's pronounced A-B. So Bob A-B. Towards the end of the chapter about Bob in his book, Terry says that Bob had changed his last name to Alibi for wrestling purposes. And that's a direct quote. And what that means, I don't know. I don't mean if this that he legally changed his name for some reason, or he just, maybe people had problems spelling it or pronouncing it or whatever. So he just added the L in there and told people in wrestling that his last name was Alibi. But now that we have his actual real name, John and I went back Googling and newspapers.coming and ancestry.coming to see if we could find anything more. And we found a little bit, not a whole lot, but again, these are things about someone who is a full-time professional wrestler for several years in the 1970s that has never been part of the wrestling historical record before. So we're going to post pictures and articles on Twitter, uh, but we're going to talk about this. Uh, we found several pics of Bob in high school. Yep. Uh, and John, you found some documents on Ancestry.com. Uh, putting them all together, these are the uh, the travel stuff. Uh, it sure seems like one or both of Bob's parents were in the military. Yeah. And, and so explain to our listeners, John, how I'm making that assumption. Um, they're on the passenger list here. Um, they list the, the you, you know the passengers who are arriving and the crew on uh, on these on these on these ships. Um, and both of these, everything I found, were for uh, United States naval ships, USNS. Um, and what those are are uh, U.S. Navy ships, non-commissioned. That they use for you know non-war purposes, um, so that's a big hint. Um, from 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 where they're traveling, um, you know they're traveling from. The first one I found was you know lists you know a a a, a nine-month-old Robert A. B. Uh, Robert L. A. B. And this middle initial is very important. That will come to to help us in this research. Generally speaking, a middle initial is very, very helpful in doing this sort of research. Um, and they're arriving at Ellis Island from Germany in 1950. Um, his mother's address listed as being in Brooklyn, 
while Roberts has like a, what's called an FS240 notation in his address file. And what that indicates is a U.S. citizen born abroad, uh, most likely Germany in this case. Um, so that will also come in handy when, when trying to nail down this as actually our guy later on. Uh, there's a few other um, you know, uh, sailing from Seattle to Yokohama in 1954. And on that one, it shows his mom was born in Italy. And we also see a younger sister, Corinne, who uh, is listed as traveling with them, too. And a sister, Corinne, is also mentioned in Terry Bohr's uh, book. So another clue that sort of pieces sort of so it just sort of it corroborates that we've got our guy um, yep. by matching the middle initial to some other documents we'll find later to these familial relations to the age given at a certain time matching up almost perfectly with what we believe Bob's real age would be based on when we knew he was in high school and so on and so forth. So yeah, and also. We're, Mm-hmm. Her birth, her birthplace is listed as Fort Knox, which also gives credence to like probably a military family. Right. So, or 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 she was made well. of gold. One or the other. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So, again, we, you know, this isn't relevatory information or anything, but we now again, you know, the we know where he came from. Uh, he didn't he wasn't really a vampire. <laughs> That just showed up at the, at the backstage of the dressing room one day. Maybe, yeah, they had a coffin match and they, they, you know, someone brought a coffin in and they opened it up and there he was. Oh, okay. All right. You're, you're up third. Uh, I also found a couple of newspaper articles discussing Bob Aby's early love of wrestling that also included Terry Boers. In an article about Terry from the Southtown Star out of Tinley Park, Illinois, a former classmate recounted that Bob and Terry would put headlocks on their unsuspecting classmates during gym class and refer to themselves as the bruiser and the crusher. Oh. And this was corroborated by an early 1970s article from the Tinley Park Star Tribune written by the paper's sports editor, Mike Downey. Mike wrote, quote, I can still picture Bob and Terry, two six foot three, two hundred forty pounders, growling and flexing their muscles and threatening to rip the entire gym class limb from limb. <laughs> Bob put a sleeper hold on me once and wouldn't stop until I turned purple. <laughs> so again, this is so this is now two separate individuals who were acquaintances of the future Bulldog drummer, Count Drummer in high school, uh, sort of corroborating, you know, not only that this is our guy, but especially given his interest in wrestling and the fact that Terry knew he was training to be, you know, training to wrestle uh, with the fifth Beatle, the wrestling Beatle, George Ringo. This again, now this is all, you know, this is good info. This isn't, well, we think we found someone named Bob A.B. in, you know, Illinois, and it might be him. This clearly is our man. So we know about Bulldog Drummer's wrestling career. We now know a little bit about his pre-wrestling career. So the question is, what happened to him when his wrestling career was over? And, And, you know, perhaps can we find out, is he still alive? So, John, 
Uh, you sort of alluded to this earlier. You found some things more recently that seem to, again, seem to be our guy. So tell us what what we think Bob A.B. has been up to more recently. Yeah, so doing a little more digging, I found, you know, the public records, you know, a, a current address of a Robert L. A.B. Uh, slash Count Drummer, born on June 13th, 1949. Again, we're fairly certain that's our guy. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to give out his home address or anything, but we, we can we can say he lives in Missouri. We can say that much, yep. I guess. Big enough, you know, another big clue there. Um, digging even further, going deeper, deeper, deeper. Um, I was able to find a, a random Facebook post from six or eight years ago uh, promoting an art event in uh, Griffith Park featuring the artwork of a Bob and Peggy AB, whose art is sold under the corporate name of Lords Diversified. Um, going even further, I found something on the Lincoln Arts Festival website that talks about, it has some photos of Peggy and Bob's artwork. Uh, it mentions Bob was born in Heidelberg, Germany. Right. So there, there we go. So it's like, yeah, there, there it is right there. Um, the art's kind of cool, too. I think Chris Colt would approve if you, if you get my drift. Yeah, so. we'll, we'll post uh, some links uh, to, to the things that John found. Yeah, the artwork is actually pretty cool. And going a step further, I did find a mention of Lords Diversified in April of 2022 that they were participating in the Iowa Renaissance Festival. Um, all, all it says is Lords Diversified. It doesn't list Bob or Peggy by name. So I can't, you know, I can't swear that it was Bob or maybe other people that are affiliated with this company, but the two may very well still be active in the art community to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, and you neglected to mention in addition to finding address and stuff like that, uh, you were able to find two email addresses that may have been him, but you said when you tried emailing them, they bounced back. Yeah, they, they bounced back right away. Yeah, I got a, I got his phone number too, but I, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not calling Count Drummer yet, maybe. maybe. <laughs> uh, again, you know, well, you know, we, you, you were able to email Don Diamond and get a response yep. from him a while back. So that was nice. And sometimes you don't want to push you know, too hard. We, we did well with Don. Again, now that we have this info about Count, perhaps someone listening, uh, you know, might even go further and say, you, you know, might live in Illinois or might know Bob A.B. and say, oh, that name rings a bell. And perhaps now over time, we can continue to learn more and more about him. But at this point, you know, it, it's really cool to find new info that yeah. Seemingly no other wrestling historians were able to find it. What's cool about this is we know why they weren't able to find it, because apparently Count Drummer worked the workers with a worked shoot name. Yeah. <laughs> the letter L, baby. Yeah, you just add that L and it changes everything. Now, I know, John, you've mentioned that when you search on Ancestry, you can sometimes... Uh, use sensitivity settings to say it doesn't have to exactly be a l e b i it's something close yeah. but but we couldn't find anything about bob ab by only using bob alibi it wasn't until we had the exact spelling of the name that you were able to find these things 
Yeah, and then even then, you, you'd be you'd be shocked and appalled at the amount of Bob Abies that yeah. is Robert Abies that exist within that that are born within you know three to five years. Right. Of, of course, we of, expected yeah. we expected last month for there to be a lot of Dan Johnsons when we were trying to find yeah. Battleship Johnson or Joe Johnsons. But yeah, you 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 really don't think there are that many Bob Abies in the world. And to our listeners, whatever your name is, you might think I'm probably the only person in the world with this exact spelling of my name. I'm pretty sure if you do some searching, you will find that sadly you are not a unicorn. No, no. That's why. So that's why. Also, going back really quickly, not to not to hold this up, but uh, Terry's article, or not his article, his uh, the the chapter in his book was so so helpful because it had those 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 very important clues there. Right. Um. You know, his real name, high school, year he graduated, so that gives us his his birth his, year. Right. Um. His sister's name, also very important, was a very good physical description. Yep. Describes him as tall with the with the black bushy hair so you can you know we found i found the, the high school yearbook photo so i could be like aha yes this is this is this is our man yeah. so those all that helped you know, tremendously so. so there you go new info on bulldog drummer aka count drummer and that so that covers the mid carters bulldog drummer jim white we talked about the upper mid carters and the, and the main eventers uh when i post these this information on the blog these sort of quarterly snapshots i also compile a list of part-timers and these are sometimes just local wrestlers who only work a couple of shows occasionally or when the world champion comes in or when haystack or andre comes in sometimes you have you know wrestlers just coming in for one or two shots here or there and there's a couple of really interesting names that show up in the part-timers and other wrestlers list this quarter. And the first is Bill Watts. If you recall, Watts left the territory uh, in early 1973 to go to Georgia. He's also wrestling occasionally for Florida, but he's basically the booker in Georgia. He also acquires a piece of the territory. Um, I've seen some things that say that when Watts left McGurk in 73, it wasn't the most amicable of splits. So it wasn't just Bill got a better opportunity or got a good opportunity in Georgia. There might have been some outstanding issues between Bill and Leroy. I don't know if that that's a fact or not, but Watts had been gone at this point for over a year. However, he is advertised and booked for two shows during this quarter, one on May 29th in Jackson, Mississippi versus the Spoiler, and the other a tag match on June 1st in Vicksburg, Mississippi. First hmm. thing worth noting is that both of the shows he's advertised on are in the state of Mississippi. Yeah. And the Culkins are running those shows. One thing, though, about Jackson, from my research, Watts was when Watts was here, he was almost always wrestling in Jackson when there was a show in Jackson. And again, at this point in time, they're running at least two and often three shows a night. But uh, on the nights when Jackson was run, which was usually Wednesday nights, if Watts is booked, he's almost certainly booked in Jackson. So 
perhaps he had some connection to the venue or some local businessman in Jackson. Um, perhaps he had, you know, business to attend to back home and he decided to turn it into a tax write off by getting a couple yeah. of bookings about it. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I will say we don't have results for either of those shows, so I cannot confirm that Watts was there. But I will say it makes no sense to falsely advertise him. So this isn't just, you know, the Culkins or whoever just saying, well, we need to draw a house. So let's throw Watts's name on there. Uh, there was some reason for this going on, because also, like I mentioned, he's full time in Georgia and wrestling occasionally in Florida. I've got records for shows in Florida and in Georgia on the 29th and June 1st. And Watts is not booked, nor does he appear on any of the shows we have records for. Now, he is in Atlanta on May 31st. So think about this. He's going to Jackson, Mississippi on May 29th, back to Atlanta to work two nights later, and then the next night back to Mississippi. And Vicksburg is only about 40 miles outside of Jackson. So for that reason, I'm not ready to 100% say that Watts worked these two shows. But again, it doesn't make sense for him to have been falsely advertised. Um, so, you know, I, I might choose to reach out to Gil Culkin and see if he has any recollection of this. It seems out of place, but there's just no good argument for why they would have advertised him knowing he wouldn't yeah. be there. So that's one of the interesting names that is a part-timer in the second quarter of 1974. The other one is a man that had just had his first ever professional wrestling match in Fort Worth, Texas on April 29th, 1974. And that is Frank Goodish. Oh, yeah. So... We're going to talk a little bit about the early life, the pre-wrestling career of Goodish. I think most of our listeners know the 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 main, you know, the bullet points, but we're going to go into a little in-depth. But first, we're going to talk about his earliest wrestling days. So, uh, as I mentioned, his first pro match was April 29th in Fort Worth, Texas. A week earlier, he was in the crowd as a quote-unquote fan and ended up challenging Bob Roop. I'm going to assume huh. Roop was doing an open challenge type of thing. Yeah. Huh. Um, and so, you know, he challenged Roop to a match the following week. They build it as a lights out match. Uh, I think the reasoning behind that would be they were portraying Goodish as a non-professional wrestler. So uh, therefore it wasn't sanctioned. That's cool. Hence the lights out stipulation. So that was April 29th. His next match uh, his next documented match uh, that I have is on May 17th in Lafayette, Louisiana for Leroy McGurk. He then went back to East Texas to wrestle Roop in Dallas on May 21st, then comes back to Lafayette and works only that town for a few weeks before McGurk slowly brings him around to the rest of the territory. Interesting. So according to Buck Robley, in an interview he did for the book Brody, The Triumph and Tragedy of Wrestling's Rebel, which was written by Larry Matisik and Barbara Goodish, Robley said they first introduced Frank as a fan in the crowd in Lafayette, similar to how it had been done in Fort Worth. Now, huh. you'll notice uh, Robley is saying they first introduced Frank. What's interesting, Robley is referred to in this book as McGurk's booker at the time. 
Remember earlier in the podcast, we speculated Rip Tyler was still the booker given his continuing push. So there's a couple of possibilities here. First one, Robley was replacing Tyler as Booker right around this time. Again, as we mentioned, Tyler drops the North American title in late June. And from that point, it is going to be de-pushed down the card. So it's possible that Robley came in and kept Rip strong to build up a suitable opponent for him. Uh, and there was some sort of transitional period. The other possibility is that Robley was embellishing shall we say. Um, <laughs> as we've mentioned before on this podcast, both Robley and Ernie Ladd have claimed to be the booker for Mid-South in early 1980 when JYD was, was got his first push. They couldn't both have been the booker. So again, it's possible Robley is massaging uh, things here. The other possibility, which is, is very possible, is that Robley was booking the towns in the lower half of Louisiana for Grizzly Smith, yeah, uh, which okay. is where Goodish's early appearances were. So, uh, I, John, do you have any idea? Again, Robley is young to be a booker. I think he yeah. broke in in 68 or 69, but so hmm. was Rip Tyler. And, and Rip Tyler hadn't had a rep as a booker. So, again, if we're saying, well, Buck couldn't have been the booker because he was too young, uh, so was Rip. So uh, it doesn't hold water. So I, do you yeah. have any thoughts on this? I don't. I wonder too. Like when a lot of those, a lot of the times you hear guys, or you, you know, say we. I wonder if that's just them generally referring to the office, not True. necessarily him. Just like the office in general, he made him even being external of it. Him just having worked in it later, you know, uh, just referring to the office as as himself as part of the office, even if he wasn't part of the right. office. And, it, and in Brody's book, the author refers to Robley as the booker. It's possible that Robley just said, we did this. And Larry yeah. interpreted that to mean Robley was hands-on. And perhaps he wasn't. Perhaps Robley, yeah. again, perhaps Robley never said he was the booker at this time. And it just got, uh, you know, twisted around. Yeah. So there you go. Somebody was somebody was booking for Leroy. And what's interesting is I think we've talked about this earlier. <laughs> for most of the 60s, Leroy didn't have a what I'll call a rotating booker where someone would come in for six months and book. There are times when some wrestlers seem to have stroke in the 60s, notably Al Lovelock. Um, there are times when he's there that a lot of his running buddies are also there. The same can be said for Louis Talay. And both of those men have experienced booking in other territories as well. So it's possible. But it wasn't really until Watts came in in late 1970 that Leroy started naming bookers uh, and that they, they would change over time. Um, as far as early Frank Goodish footage goes, Goodish, Goodish, Goodish footage. <laughs> Goodish footage. That's a tongue twister. Uh, <laughs> yeah. John, you found something from Florida in 1976. Was this the earliest Frank Goodish footage you could find? That's really the only Goodish, Goodish footage. <laughs> and was it? And was it Goodish? It was Goodish. It was Goodish. It was goodish goodish it was, footage. Yeah, it's just like a, it's a quick. You know, it's a quick five-minute TV match. Yeah, and it's um, uh, it's Frank Goodish teaming up with King Curtis against Jerry Briscoe and Abe Jacobs. And Frank is, I think he's billed as Frank the Hammer Goodish for this run in Florida. 
but it's a, it's exactly how you think a five minute TV match between those two teams would go. Uh, the heels overpowering <laughs> at first, but Briscoe and Jacobs using their quickness and their wrestling ability. Uh, in particular, Briscoe taking Goodish down to the mat and 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 going after the legs until finally the the monster heels get uh, you know get the advantage and then don't give it up. Yeah, it's amazing how oh my god he looks so huge. Yeah, like when he's like locking up with Jerry Briscoe, he just looks like. Goodish is like so big. Oh, he's like a mon. And it's funny seeing him too because he doesn't have the. Uh, this is before he had the big woolly boots. So right. Seeing him wearing those regular wrestling boots, like the, the Bill Ash boots or whatever. You know, it's like a, without not the, not the furry stuff on them yet. So it's kind of cool seeing that as well. So yeah, we'll post a link to that on YouTube from Florida in 1976. Goodish and Curtis versus Jerry Briscoe and Abe Jacobs. So now. Going back even earlier before his wrestling career, before his pro wrestling career, we go to his high school days. Uh, John found some pages from his high school yearbook, which was Warren High <laughs> School in Michigan. And there's some pictures of him playing basketball. Um, of course, you know, we know he played football. I think all our listeners know that he played football in college. He, of course, played for West Texas State because every professional wrestler from the 1970s played football at West Texas State. Yeah. But prior to that, John, he played as a freshman at Iowa State. And while yeah. he was there, he got into a little trouble with the law. So, John, tell <laughs> us about this this horrendous offense. Oh, that Frank Goodish committed in Iowa. There, yeah, I really, I really, I really didn't didn't know until I was doing this research that he had 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 played freshman football for for Iowa. Um, and there's a, like you know he, quite a few articles that detail you know his, his various on field accomplishments. You know, I was very excited to find this clipping that uh, listed an uh, off the field misstep that I thought was. Uh, cartoonishly hilarious from the May 19th, 1965 edition of the Ames, Iowa daily tribune in the municipal court section. We see Frank Goodish has been fined $10 for operating a bicycle at night without a light. <laughs> that son of a bitch. <laughs> so what I wouldn't give to see like somehow like there's a young rock episode where someone hits their head and they go back in time to like 1965 Iowa, and we get to see this whole scene play out. Like, I know this wasn't what happened, but if you you know if you hit your head and you go back in time, it's, it's like a scene where like it, you know, 1982 Bruiser Brody in full gimmick, shirtless, screaming like "Huss" over and over again, riding like a Pee Wee Herman type bike um, in the passing lane of a divided highway. That's why I want this scene to play out in my. In my head, yeah. So, so this was this was from a, a police blotter type of article where they list all the various you know fines and whatever. And uh, I, aside from riding the bicycle at night without a light, the other interesting one was some person named V M Roach. Those are initials V period M period Roach was had a five dollar bond forfeited. I don't know if that means they paid a five dollar fine or what it was, but. For allowing his or her dog to run at large. <laughs> so there were all sorts of rule breakers going around. Yeah. I, perhaps this is where Frank got his rebellious spirit 
that would come to be his claim to fame in professional wrestling circles. He said, I don't need no light to ride a bike at night. And then from there, it's, you know, walking out on, uh, uh, you know, in the middle of a Japan tour. Yeah. All makes sense now. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's a slippery slope, but yeah, we'll post some of these pictures uh, from the high school yearbook. It, it's really, it, you know, it's interesting to see how big he is even back then. Uh, and, you know, and then yeah. of course there's his football days as well. And then from there we fast forward to after school. Uh, he is, a sports writer uh, and he's writing articles for the San Antonio Express and news. Uh, John, you found one of an early one from June 1st, 1969. Um, but he's basically yeah. a sports columnist for the San Antonio newspaper and also from the grand Prairie times in grand Prairie, Texas. At one point he, um, he makes the taxi squad for the Washington Redskins but yeah. then was cut in uh, July of 1970. So he came very close to an NFL career and ends up, I know he ended up playing for the CFL, but he also played for some regional leagues in the Southwest. And I posted something about this on Twitter last month, but basically he was playing for the Fort Worth Braves of the Texas Football League. And the team, which apparently wasn't uh, making a whole lot of money at the time, asked players to sign an amendment to their contracts, waiving their salary in exchange for a percent of the gate. And any player who did not wish to sign was granted a release. The first player to be granted their release was Frank Goodish. So again, considering... Mm -hmm. Brody's proclivities during his wrestling career for walking out when he felt promoters were taking advantage of him. This is uh, something he exhibited earlier than that in his football days as well. Yep. And now how he gets into wrestling is uh, the connection is through Joe Bednarski, uh, Ivan Putsky. Uh, Joe, of course, also played football. I believe they may have met at the at a gym or perhaps knew each other through the weightlifting slash powerlifting circles. But uh, Bednarski recommended Goodish to Fritz von Erich, and Frank was trained by Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr., which hmm. again is another very interesting factoid considering uh, Brody's rep later on for leaving territories abruptly, considering that Rupin Orton a few years later uh, became notorious in wrestling circles for leaving a promotion abruptly. And this is when they walked out along with Ron Garvin and Boris Malenko. Uh, they walked out on Ron Fuller Southeastern promotion. Yeah. So again, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out who's the chicken and who's the egg in this scenario between Frank Goodish and Bob Roop. Yeah, it you know it's obviously when you're you're reading reading about him and you're re even reading some of his his sports writing, you could tell there there's like a sarcasm uh, and like a dark humor and a bitterness uh, to 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 even his sports writing. You know, when he's a kid, like he always had this sort of wild spirit or whatever they you know in the scouting reports, what do they call it? like not coachable or didn't fit well in a team environment. You know, I think he was interviewed by the local paper about the, the Braves thing about a year after it happened. Um, I could post that article too. And you get a good sense of his, you know, he's got this combination of like a take no shit attitude and like 
a bitterness or like a world weariness that is well beyond his years. And it's interesting that at such a young age, he's so like dug in, you know, but he's a smart, smart kid. Like he talks about when the stuff went down at that, that Fort, Fort Worth uh, Braves semi-pro football team. First thing he did was call the sports editor of the Fort Worth Press. You know, he's saying, I'm a sports writer myself and I wanted to get the facts out. And of course, it got him in a little, you know, a little, a lot of hot water. Um, and the way the whole thing played out, it was almost like a wrestling angle almost, you know, like Gooder just was complaining about being the guy that has to draw the house, you know. Uh, and according to the sports editor from Fort Worth, like Jim Bowder, I think was his name, he said that Goodish was more honest with the paper than the football organization was, you know, um, and that in the end, the publicity from the situation did the team more good than harm. Like they ended up drawing a good house, as they say in wrestling. And, you know, and to Frank Goodish's credit, Bowder said that Goodish was honest. There was no, you know, sensationalism in his story. What he was saying, he just didn't think, you know, management was being fair, you right. know, to the players. You know? yeah. But I mean, I guess in in the end, you know, discipline needed to excel in a team sport environment was not something that existed within Frank Goodish. But like I said, he would not be long for team sports after meeting Putski in the gym that that fateful day. Yeah. So he, uh, as I said, he's considered a part-timer at this point in time because he's only wrestling uh, one show a week for Leroy, and that's in Lafayette, Louisiana. But as we get into the summer, he will be... uh, more wrestling more often throughout the territory. And uh, at some point uh, before the end of 1974, he will form a tag team with uh, another bloke who played Texas at, uh, sorry, who played football at West Texas state and went on to become a very successful professional wrestler, uh, mostly in Japan. So uh, a man whose career uh, sort of mimicked Brody's would become a partner of his. So that covers the second quarter of 1974 in McGurk's territory. At the same time, in another territory, Bob Backlund, who had been here earlier in 74, was enjoying the first real push of his career, wrestling in Amarillo for the Funks. And on the latest episode of Stats 101, which was released earlier in May, I say episode, it's actually now a blog post. Um... With the Stats 101, because so much of it is based on statistics and numbers, I don't think it really played well as a podcast, so I've turned it into a mostly monthly blog post where we're going to take one wrestler and look at a run of his in a particular territory, and the idea is to pick wrestlers run in territories that you didn't, you know, you didn't realize they were there. And like I said, a lot of fans probably didn't realize Backlund was in Amarillo, but this is in uh, the second quarter of 1974. And it's interesting because even though he wins uh, one of the promotion's main singles titles, his spot rating puts him as a mid-carder, not even an upper mid-carder, but for most of the time he's there, he's a mid-carder. And you can even see it in his opponents, because even when he's the champion, we look at who he's defending the title against, and it's other mid-carders, like the Patriots, who are a mass tag team, which was Bob Griffin and Bobby Hart, uh, Carl Von Steiger, Siegfried Stanka. He's really not wrestling the top stars, who at this point are guys like Killer Carl Cox, Dick Murdoch, Jim Dillon, the Funks. So even though Backlund won the Western States heavyweight title from Terry Funk, within a week, when it, when he first got to the territory, he is presented 
as a mid-carder most of the way there and is positioned lower on the cards than the Funks, Murdoch, Cyclone Negro, Ricky Romero, uh, and the other big stars of the territory. Yeah, this whole, this, this, I, I, I love this. This is really, really cool. Um, first off, I said my love for Bob Backlund is no secret. I love to defend him <laughs> to, to all his detractors. I rarely get involved in any Twitter discussion threads that I did not start or that I was not. Our pal McAdam has been going back and forth with uh, a couple of people about whether whether Backlund truly had, quote unquote, more undercard support in the in Madison Square Garden in particular yes. than other champions. And I, I don't wade into it because, again, some but some, you know, someone needs to actually present data and statistics to to either support, you know, to either uh, affirm or deny this claim instead of saying, oh, I saw one card where Andre was, you know, also on the card. So that means Backlund always had help. No, it doesn't. Let's, you know, run the numbers. I don't have time to, nor do I want to. Uh, but, you know, you can't solve an argument based on, you know, data without actually crunching the numbers. So to John McAdam, if he, if he wants to prove his point, and again, based on who's in this discussion, I would side with McAdam uh, based on his knowledge and experience. Uh, I would pretty much believe that he's got it right. Um, but, I know. Yeah. Even very quickly, it is like I, I was just randomly looked at a, a, a couple months and in one year and they were talking about the Boston Garden specifically and just to show how strong they were and like during that time they would occasionally run the boston garden and the philadelphia spectrum on the same night hmm. and they'd have you know they'd have like bruno zabisco at uh you know the boston garden and have like duncan and backland at the spectrum on the same night which is crazy yeah anyway back to but but, but you're back to your stuff um no 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 secret that i love bob backland he, he was my champ but you know we're we're talking about his his push here, um, and like you said, this is so interesting. Like he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't even have any feuds to speak of. He's just wrestling guys. Yeah, which <laughs> which when when you think about it that way, that is indicative of him being, if not pushed, protected. Because this, if he's not feuding with anybody, that and he's the champion most of the time, that means he's winning. Uh, because if he's not having rematches with somebody, it's because he wins the first time out. So again, the, you know, a lot of people use, uh, you know, look at how protected somebody is by their win loss record. And I think here it's worth looking at that. And, and again, I developed the spot writing because I believe by and large, it's a better barometer of a wrestler's role in a territory than just calculating their win loss record. But I think here it's worth noting that, yes, Backlund is in the mid-cards, and yes, he's wrestling other mid-carders, but he's beating them. And again, he beat Terry Funk to win the title. So they're, they're protecting him. And, and, you know, the other thing about this territory, particularly as a babyface, and this is uh, something that Chris Knights, who wrote uh, an Amarillo record book that Scott Teal published last year, uh, he responded to one of my posts about this and said, as a babyface in Amarillo, there's really no 
chance for upward mobility because you have Terry and Dory, even though they're in demand around the world, they're still regulars here and they're going to have those top main event spots, as is Ricky Romero. And when Ciclone Negro is here as the NWA international champion, he is wrestling against baby faces and heels. So right there, you've got four main event babyface you know, possibilities for, for a card. And here they're only running one main town a night. And it looks like they're probably running spot shows a lot of the times during the week. But so really there's just not room to push another baby face above the funks, above Romero, above, uh, at this point, Dick Murdoch is also there. He's, uh, he's working as a baby face. So that's another top spot for a baby face, that that backland can't get to. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's nice too because you break it down on on, on a town by town basis, so you could sort of see how in some of the you know quote unquote B towns, mm-hmm. backland is slotted a little bit higher than he is in the A town, which, which make, also which makes to, sense because yeah. uh, you know when you th- you know the term A town and B town, the A town is the more loaded lineup. So of those funks, Murdoch, Romero, chances are. Many of them, if not all of them, or more of them, are going to be on the A town. Therefore, where whereas Bob might have been third from the top, or fourth from the top normally, now in that B town, he's more likely to be second from the top because only one of the Murdoch Romero Funks is going to be in that B town. So next month, we're going to do the same thing with another Bob. With this one, Bobby. Bobby Shane, and we're going to look at his 1971 run in Gulf Coast. And we've got some attendance figures from some of his matches in Mobile. And I'm going to tell you, for fans who think Gulf Coast was a small territory, when you hear what Bobby Shane was drawing in Mobile, Alabama, uh, we might just change your mind and your opinion on that. So, yeah. We're going to do that. Uh, But now, John, it's time for the newest monthly feature. Oh, oh my. We're going to do this every month. And John, you have no idea what's coming, correct? You you have no idea what I'm about to do. So let's just do it. Yeah, I had so much fun questioning John with Gordon Soley's championship trivia last month. Knew it. That we're going to do it every Damn it. month. Damn it, I knew it. On this podcast. So, John, are you ready to test your wrestling knowledge by yeah. playing Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia game? Can I put on some re-up my deodorant before we do this segment every month? Because I'm sweating already. Well, oh, now, God. now that you know it's coming, <laughs> and it, and it, I could you just, can I could, do that. All right. I could keep it on my desk. Okay. So I've got one card here. Yeah. And uh, recall, this is a wrestling trivia game. It's very similar to Trivial Pursuit. Each card has four questions. I'm looking at this one, and there are two very easy ones and two others. So we'll start with the easy ones. No, oh, geez. 
which wrestler was known as the uh, rubber man? Johnny Walker, correct? Ding, 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 ding. Correct. Question number two. What state has produced wrestlers such as Ken Patera, Stan Stasiak, and Billy Jack Haynes? That would be Oregon. Ding, 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 ding. Two for two. Is that right? All right. I th- is that really correct? I thought Stasiak was from Canada. Uh, uh-huh. it's kayfabe. kayfabe. Maybe it's yeah, kayfabe. this could be kayfabe. kayfabe. I, I'm, I'm okay. not sure. Okay. All right. Now, I said there were two difficult ones. I'm going to pick one of the two difficult ones. And this is a true-false question. Okay. Luke the Kook Lapetus tag-teamed with Buddy Rogers to win the NWA Tag Team Championship on August 26th, 1942. Can you spell his last name for me? Not Rogers, the other guy. L-A-capital-P-E-T-I-S. I'm going to go with false. Ding, 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 ding. You are three for three. I, you know, I looked at it when I first looked at it, I didn't realize it was a true false question. And I'm like, Luke, the Lepetus 1942. I don't know if John will know this, but I guess that's just a made up name. Because there's prob- <laughs> I would assume there is no wrestler named Luke the Kook Lepetus. However, if any indie promotion wants to give me the book nowadays, there will be because that will be the first guy I, I bring in yeah. to a new territory. <laughs> so there you go, John. You were three for three this month on Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia Game. Oh, nice. And we have one more thing on the agenda this month. Um, Just last week, I released the latest in a series of almanacs. Uh, We've done them previously for the Culkins promotion in Mississippi. We did one for Leroy McGurk's uh, post-split with Watts when he ran uh, Tri-State Wrestling from 1979 to 1982. We also did one for the Heart of America Territory, which is also known as Central States, for 1973. And then earlier this year, we did one for Western States Sports, which is the Amarillo Territory, also for 1973. So keeping with that theme, I did another one for the year of 1973. And like all the other almanacs, you can go to www.payhip.com slash charting the territories, and you can download these for free or Name your own price. And I've been looking at the people that have been downloading it, and I want to say I'm always pleasantly surprised by the people who decide to uh, pay for it. Um, uh, usually it's it's a, a small amount. We rec- I have a recommended price of $3.99, but truly, if you want to download this for free, you are more than welcome to. Um, it's perfectly fine with me. I, I really just want to get this research out there. But this uses our spot ratings and our FLW scores and our house show calendars, uh, but sort of puts it into a, a really neat format. And it's something that really hasn't been done in wrestling before. We've seen results books and we've seen more, you know, autobiographical content about wrestlers or even about territories. But, you know, this one to do it in a kayfabe way, but to present statistics and data is something that's never done before. And I chose Vancouver because it's just a territory that really doesn't get a whole lot of press. And 
1973, there's some interesting folks that wrestle in there. In fact, there's a young rookie named Larry Whistler, Mm -hmm. who, of course, is Larry Zabisco. And, uh, you know, he had been wrestling as Larry Zabisco for the WWF for several months, if not quite a year. And really, John, fans in British Columbia had heard good things about Larry and were eagerly waiting for his arrival. Once he finally showed up, then they learned what waiting really was. <laughs> oh, God. I would like to thank my good friend, John Keating, for helping me workshop that joke that I've been working on for months. <laughs> but not only do we have Larry Whistler, we also have Alpha and Sika, the Samoans, who are here as a babyface tag team. Um, the big star of the territory in 1973 was someone we've talked about recently, and that was Bugsy McGraw. Not only have we talked about him, but I talked with him. Uh, We had an interview a couple of months ago, but Bugsy had a huge run here as the brute, uh, as the the top heel and the top wrestler in the territory. Basically, Gene Kaniski, who at this point was uh, one of the owners of the territory, but he's reducing his entering schedule starting in the early 70s. So with him not wrestling full-time and with the other territory's top heel, Bulldog Bob Brown, leaving at the beginning of 1971, um, Sandor Kovacs called Don Owen uh, and asked if if uh, he could bring Bugsy McGraw, who was wrestling in Portland as the Skull, uh, but asked on Owen if he could bring him up to Vancouver full-time. And in Bugsy's autobiography, Brute Power, he says originally he was hesitant to go. He had had a bad experience a couple of years earlier when he wrestled in Stampede. So he was all, you know, Canada bad, U.S. good. But uh, Owen said, give it a, you know, give it a shot. If it doesn't work out in a couple of months, you know, give him your notice and come back here. He ended up staying for a year and a half as the top heel in the territory. So John, aside from the brute and Kaniski and Larry Whistler and Afa and Sika, were there any other names, uh, any other wrestlers that were part of the talent roster in Vancouver in 1973 that uh, surprised you? Um, Butts Gerode. Butts Gerode. Yes, I put on Twitter that uh, perhaps one of the reasons I charted this territory was so that I could type the word butts 131 times. <laughs> it's um, the, the, the Vancouver and Portland are so interesting to me. Um, and, and you've done this uh, even in your intro. You've you really talked about the relationships between Vancouver, Kaniski Kovacs and Don Owen and later Dean Silverstone, like that. Those are not very, they're not, those relationships aren't always cut and dry. They can get very convoluted and confusing at times. And you're able to present this info in like less than a page, keep it very concise, very easily understood and digested just as you are with everything else. And that's why I, I, I love these almanacs. You really hit, on such a, a good combination of, 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 of the numbers, the data, and the visuals that you use to illustrate what's happening over the course of, in this case, a year and a territory. And to your point you're making earlier, that's what I really think makes this much more interesting 
and useful from a, a true historical perspective to really get under the hood than a, a, a traditional, you know, results book or just looking at a list of matches on on a, on a web page. Yeah, you know, the uh, way I look at it, if you bought a book that purported to cover a year in Major League Baseball and you open it up and it says April 5th, Yankees 2, Red Sox 1, Mets 5, Phillies 0, and all it did was list the score of every game all season long, you don't get much out of that. You want to know who won the World Series uh, over the course of the season, which team started out hot and then faded, uh, what players, you know, had had strong years, uh, were there, you know, in an individual game, was there something interesting that happened? That's really what you're looking for when you want when you buy a book about a year in the life of Major League Baseball. And so in a way, I'm trying to mimic that with these almanacs. And as I've said, the spot rating and now the FLW score is an attempt to have back of the baseball card stats for professional wrestlers. And so uh, really, if you haven't seen any of the prior almanacs, each time I put one out, I sort of tweak the methodology. And I think now you alluded to it. I use, uh, I graphically display uh, the wrestler's spot ratings with what I call a speedometer. Yeah, um, I love it. And it looks really great. We also track the number of bookings per week each of the wrestlers have. So you can see who was a full-timer with the crew and who might have been a part-timer, perhaps some of the preliminary wrestlers, or in this case, as we mentioned earlier, someone like Kaniski is reducing his in-ring schedule. We can actually graphically see how often he's wrestling and compare it to the other wrestlers in the crew. So this is at www.payhip.com slash charting the territories. You can download it for free or name your own price. It's a 61 page PDF file. It also includes a map of the territory and a list of all the towns that were run regularly. Plus a month by month calendar of house shows. You can literally see in on a calendar what towns are being run each uh, yeah. every night. And then we have the full advertised lineups for, I think, 183 known house shows in the territory during the year. And we have results from three of the key cities in the territory. And when we count down the top feuds using our FLW statistic, uh, in that in those cases, we actually go into detail with the results. So you can know what happened and how it sets up uh, perhaps the next match between the two in the same town. So do check that out if you love wrestling history and you love stats. And if you love both those things, you're definitely a listener to our podcast. So we hope you'll take it a step further and uh, check out these almanacs. And that wraps it up for this month, John. Yes. Next month Almost. on charting charting the territories. Well, yeah, we still got to go through one thing uh, we each learned. But next month on charting the territories, we're going to look at the second quarter of 1978 in the McGurk territory. And we're going to answer the question, do big cats like candy? <laughs> we'll find out. Plus, two wrestlers who are probably best known for being parts of a couple of different tag teams, spend some time teaming with each other, and Jose Lothario returns to the territory for the first time in 16 years. 
As I mentioned earlier, we'll also uh, be releasing a new Stats 101 blog post looking at Bobby Shane's big run in early 1971 in Gulf Coast. So to our listeners, we hope you learned something this month. I think everybody learned something about Count Drummer. Uh, We learned his real name and we learned a little bit about the shenanigans he and his future sports talk radio host friend did uh, in high school together, how they terrorized their classmates in gym by threatening to put them in sleeper holds. Um, But John and I are constantly learning all sorts of new things. And at the end of every episode, we each state one thing we learned this month. So, John, what did you learn this month? So, early, early this month, I was looking into the, the infamous stampede wrestling angle from December 83, I think, where, where Bad News Allen turns on Archie the Stomper Gouldy right. and pile drives his son, attacks him with a fork, bloody mess, Ed Whalen quits, Stu Hart gets his license suspended, you know, the whole angle, which should have made a lot of money, ends up costing them a lot of money. Because they had this feud and couldn't run in the civilians, so they had to go to like the First Nations reservations that no one goes to. They don't draw well. Ends up being one of the final nails in the coffin of that initial or that that, that era of Stampede wrestling. So I, I had always assumed that the the Stomper's son, Jeff Goldie, I think was the name, was his legitimate offspring. I just figured all 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 the heart kids running around, you know, causing making a mess. Maybe the Stomper figured he'd get his 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 kids in on the action as well. This month I learned that the guy who was portraying Jeff Gouldy was not Archie Gouldy's real-life son, but was Tommy Lane, one half of the rock and roll RPM. What? I didn't know yes. that. Wow. One half of the other, the other half being Mike Davis, right? Yeah. Um, and also wrestled as Tommy Rogers, not the Tommy Rogers, but the, the other Tommy, Tommy Rogers. Rogers. A Tommy Rogers, tagging with Marty Jannetty as the, as the Uptown Boys there in Central States. Yeah, so I I, I I I learned that. That was a surprise to me. I always assumed it was just like his his kid that they just like, hey, come in there, do this angle, and be done with wrestling. But it was actually no, it was actually a guy. Well, and this uh, was this was was from a promotion that didn't they claim that Beulah McGillicuddy was Pillman's sister? <laughs> Is, did I get that right? Yeah, I think you did. Yeah. Yes, yes. So yeah, apparently, yeah. apparently the hearts, not only are the hearts, the only you know always have to be you know the top guys in the territory, but any they can't be any other real families. And if you claim to bring <laughs> in a family member, it can't be your actual family yeah. member. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. All right. Well, I learned something about 1984 Mid South. Of course, I think everybody knows about 1984 Mid South. That was the big year. That was the, uh, the rock and roll express versus the midnights. That was the last stampede. That was, uh, Mr. Wrestling two turning on Magnum, uh, just some of the greatest stars in wrestling history. Uh, and in most cases, uh, in 1984, they were young and on the way up. It really is amazing looking at Watts's territory uh, from 79 on, really how much he gambled on the young, inexperienced guys. Talk about Junkyard Dog, the Freebirds, uh, here to 84, the Rock and Roll and the Midnights. However, there was one grizzled veteran in the territory very briefly under a mask. For about two weeks in 1984, a masked wrestler named The Shadow 
was in the territory. He worked one TV taping uh, where he had matches against Magnum TA and Terry Taylor. But he's also working the house shows, and most of the time he's wrestling against Mark Reagan. Um, but not, uh, and one or two others. And the Shadow is losing every one of these matches, but the Shadow is a very well-known professional wrestler. The Shadow knows who the Shadow is, but until recently, I did not know that the Shadow in Mid-South Wrestling in 1984 was Dick the Destroyer Buyer. Huh. Mark Reagan was his trainee. And I guess he called Watts wanting to give uh, his, his students some uh, experience and offered to come in and work under a mask to, uh, to work with him. And the first person that, that seemed to put this together was a, uh, someone named Clinton Guillory, who I have uh, spoken with uh, on Facebook. He's a part of a lot of the Mid-South wrestling groups on Facebook that I post things to. And I've always found his comments uh, and and his uh, statements to be really good. He really knows his stuff. So when I posted something from 1984, uh, a house show ad that had the shadow and Clint responded, Hey, the shadow was Dick, the destroyer buyer. I messaged him. I messaged him and I said, look, I believe you because you know your stuff, but you got it. You got to <laughs> tell me more. You got to tell me more. So the story how about this is even more interesting. He said he was watching it, not uh, firsthand, but later when he was watching it, I guess on the network or whatever. And he just noticed, uh, first off, the announce, the, the, the shadow is getting far more offense and not a lot of offense, but more offense than you would think a random mass guy who was only there for, for one TV taping would get. And you could also tell by his mannerisms that he's older, but knows his stuff. And, and he sort of seemed to believe that it was Dick Beyer. So he posted something about this on kayfabe memories and George Shire Calls him out, basically saying, no, that's not true. How could you ever think such a thing? Why would Dick Beyer come and randomly do jobs uh, for two weeks in 1984 Mid-South? And George was so fired up about this that he called Dick Beyer. And Dick admitted it. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and then I think they, they sort of did a thing where, uh, or George posted about how he and, uh, Dick sort of watched it on YouTube, uh, while I think in like, while on the phone with one another, they each watched, uh, the match, uh, one of the oh. matches from the TV, uh, on YouTube. And, and so Dick got a great kick out of, you know, out of reliving this interesting time in his career where he just randomly put on a, a, a different mask and just did jobs for two weeks straight. So, yeah, that was what I learned this month. And I, I in a million years now, after the fact, I sort of did some Googling and looked at people that were reviewing Mid-South TV shows. And I think now a few people know about it. So if you know it's Dick Byer ahead of time and then watch the footage, it's pretty clear. Yeah. But if you had no idea and have no reason to believe that it's somebody you might come away realizing it's a veteran and maybe it's someone I've heard of, but it, it really is a stretch to say, I can tell beyond a shadow of a doubt that's Dick Beyer, unless you go in already knowing that's what it is. Huh. So there you I go. That's what I learned. Yeah. 
I want to go rewatch now and see if I can. Yeah, and now so you, yeah, we'll, we can both do that. We'll rewatch it and and report <laughs> on our findings next month on charting the territories. Of course, until then, follow us on Twitter. You know, last month I tried to get each of us more followers, and they're still trickling in. Neither of us have hit two thousand followers yet. Neither of us are that much closer than we were last month. But like I said, they're trickling in slowly. But Give me a follow at Al Gets Wrestling. And also follow my other Twitter account, Al Gets Baseball, where mm-hmm. I'm documenting my quest to visit all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums this season. I've been trying to eat some ridiculous food items along the way. Honestly, I think I'm going to scale back on that for health and wellness reasons. I'm just... I can't do it all the time. Um, There are a few really unique items that I absolutely will try when I go to certain stadiums, but I don't think I'm going to do it every single time. I'm also really upset because there was supposed to be a Flamin' Hot Cheetos hot dog in Fenway Park, but two days before I got there, they took it off the menu. So perhaps this is also, you know, due to my frustration at not being able to get what I want, because normally whatever Al wants, Al gets, but he could not get a Flamin' Hot Cheetos hot dog at Fenway Park. And yet one of the many, many, many reasons why I hate the city of Boston. Yeah, I was actually planning uh, on announcing my new blog uh, this month, uh, sort of in concert with your your baseball travels. Uh It was going to be called uh, Charting the Triglycerides. (laughs) <laughs> where we just do a weekly uh, blood sample from from you and, and read your numbers and see how crazy your numbers get as the season progresses. Yeah, but, well, like uh, what was the what was the uh, documentary about the guy that ate McDonald's for thirty days straight? Uh, Super size me. Super size me. Yeah. So um, <laughs> we're because I don't you know because I I need to sort of take care of myself. Uh, I can't commit to eating ridiculous things every single I mean, I'll still, I'm going to eat hot dogs. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not going to eat hot dogs that are stuffed with, you know, hamburgers that are topped with ice cream. Yeah. Well, well. although some places I'm going to eat something kind of similar to that, but I don't want to give it away. So, yeah, but so if you're not going to start that blog, where can our <laughs> listeners find you in the online universe? Find me on Twitter at J O N underscore B O U C H E R. Uh, I've been I've very I've had a very busy last month. I haven't been posting that month much, so maybe that's accounts for my lack of new followers. Hopefully, the next month will slow down a bit, and I'll post more stuff and get me over that nineteen hundred hump first, and then march towards and then 2000. from there march towards two thousand. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, listen to us each and every month. uh, This podcast comes out the fourth Thursday of every month. Our blog at chartingtheterritories.com is updated regularly. You can also download the All-Star Wrestling Vancouver Almanac for 1973 at www.payhip.com/chartingtheterritories. And to be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and also at chartingtheterritories.com. John, this is uh, episode number 24 in the book. So that means next Mm. month it's a birthday celebration, our two-year anniversary. 
And my birthday. And your birthday. It's birthdays all around the place. Gonna have cake. Yeah. We're gonna have cake and we're gonna eat it too. So, (laughs) listeners, thank you so much for joining us this month. John, we'll see you next month on the Charting the Territories podcast. See you in June.